everyone. Welcome to the FBC Paris podcast, where we explore intersectional feminism through literature. Today I'm talking to the writer Gabriella Burnham about her debut novel, It Is Wood, It Is Stone, which came out in July of this year. It's a beautiful book, not just to look at, but also to read. And it tells the story of Linda, a young woman who has recently lost her father to Alzheimer's. She's also lost her writing job. And she's recently made a move to Sao Paulo for her husband, Dennis's job. Gabby and I recorded our conversation over Skype and we spoke about a whole range of things, including Linda's journey, women sharing secrets with each other, Sylvia Plath, horoscopes, Brazilian music and bossa nova, as well as the country's history with racial inequality. Really hope you enjoy. It's a bit of a longer chat, but totally worth it. Hi, Gabby. Welcome to the FPC Paris podcast. Very happy to have you with us today. Thank you. Um, so we're going to have a chat about your recently released book. It is Wood, It is Stone. And if I'm correct, it's a debut novel. Is that right? It is. It's my first ah, book. How exciting and a massive congratulations because Thank you. Well, what a particular <laughs> year to be uh, Yeah your debut novel. Just for the purpose of any listeners who may not have had the privilege of reading uh, It Is Wood, It Is Stone, or who who may not have uh, seen your name, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yes. Well, I guess I should say that hearing that question, my brain immediately scrambles, um, which I at first was like, what am I going to say? And then I'm like, I think that that says a lot about me, that (laughs) I'm someone who's really interested in um, the contradictory nature of people and the fact that human beings can hold um, multitudes of things that are, that sometimes um, abut against each other. And so um, that's certainly true of me, but a few things up until very recently, I, I had a, full-time job working in immigration law. I just, uh, at the start of the pandemic, uh, decided to become a full-time writer, which was not, was coincidental. I did not know that there was going to be a pandemic this year. (laughs) So um, did not know I would be releasing a book in the middle of the pandemic. I live in Brooklyn, New York. Uh, My mother's from Brazil. Um, She emigrated to the United States when she was young. Um, She was 20. Uh, I was born in the United States and mostly grew up here. Okay, well, thank you for just giving us a a little bit more of an idea about who you are, where you are. My first question is actually to do with the US and Brazil. So as you've explained, you're you're a dual citizen and you spend some of your, I believe that you kind of frequently visit Brazil still. What kind of led you to make the decision um, to set your debut novel in Brazil instead of the US? Well, I had been trying to write a lot of stories and um, and a novel, in fact, set in the United States, and they weren't very good. <laughs> um, I I just didn't find a lot of pleasure in what I was writing. And I don't think that has to do with the United States, but I think mm-hmm. part of the process of um, learning how to write is finding 
things and topics and settings that motivate you, inspire you, seduce you, make you feel like going back to the page is like going back home. Um, And so the first time I wrote about Brazil, um, I was in an MFA program and I just wrote one page story that was, uh, it was an assignment, right? A one page story. And I just wrote this little sketch about a woman who um, was in an apartment in Sao Paulo. And I think she was playing guitar. And it was really sort of abstract. It wasn't really Mm. like nothing really happened. But I was fell in love with this setting. And um, I really felt like I had unearthed something inside me. Mm. And it gave me an excuse to um, reconnect with my Brazilian heritage. Um, You know, growing up in the United States, um, but having a parent who's an immigrant um, and all of my family is in Brazil. Brazil has always been a part of me and has shaped me, but in this kind of um, invisible way. And Mm. so there are ways in which I always felt severed um, from this part of me, but then it was also there. Um, And so writing about Brazil was a a way for me to enter back in um, and to relate to my mother and my family uh, in a, in a, more intimate way in a more direct way yeah that I mean that's beautiful to 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 kind of know that personal link and even that kind of identity and familial kind of um strong feeling um I think especially me kind of reading it during this year where we can't travel or travel is Mm -hmm. uh vastly restricted it it was it kind of just added to my all-round great reading experience to discover a, a new setting, a new culture, new ways of um, interacting. So I, I loved it, and that's kind of where that that question came from. So thank you for sharing that with us. Uh, just one thing on that. I, mm. It's funny because the book is set in Brazil, but then there's also an element of Linda being trapped in the apartment, um, which was yes. kind of a coincidental, uh, again, with the pandemic. Like, I didn't think about the fact that we would be locked inside our apartments and these walls would just be you know, prison yes. in some ways. But it is that's also Linda's experience of being a... Yeah, an American in Brazil is um, sort of this fear of leaving the apartment. So, yeah, it kind of heightened the is- isolated experience because you know mm-hmm. Linda is already feeling a little out of her depth, and then she ends up you know in this new environment where she doesn't have the language, and so it just adds to the kind of feeling lost. Um, the kind of She's, especially where she starts off in the novel. Who would have guessed, you know, that we would all be kind of staring at the four walls a little bit more this year. Now, the title, oh, and also can we just take a moment for this beautiful book cover, which I'm absolutely obsessed with. But the title, um, I'm always kind of interested in, in, in titles that may not seem really clear at first. So it is wood, it is stone is referenced about halfway through the book. And the context is that it kind of been translated from a song. Agos de Marso. Ah, thank you for yeah. the correct, beautiful uh, pronunciation. I don't know if it was just me, but then I then kind of started noticing a reference to stones. She describes kind of, you know, every time the the teenage boys call her pretinha, uh, she kind of has to swallow. It feels like swallowing a small stone. 
and Linda also uses it in relation to what well, her relationship with Dennis. She kind of when they find each other again, you know, she describes it as we had turned stone into liquid. I wonder if you could uh, talk to us a, a little bit more about kind of the the general the global meaning of this song how it became you know the title of the book and you know whether you were playing around with that kind of idea of wood stone and elements and transformation throughout the novel yeah um that's such a good question and I'm so glad that you picked up on the reoccurring theme of stones and and also wood wood appears again and again in in different yeah. forms of branches and mm. trees and wooden chairs but to to go back to the the origin of it the song Agostumas so i listened to a lot of brazilian music while writing this book and this song is a very popular um bossa nova standard probably second only to the girl from ipanema um right. but the the version, right? Yeah, but the version I listened to is by this um, wonderful artist named Elise Regina. Um, and she uh, was a Brazilian singer who uh, died very young, but was very politically active at a time when it was difficult to be politically active, especially as an artist under the military dictatorship in Brazil. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if you've had this experience, but um, you know, there are certain writers and singers and musicians where when I listen to them or read them, it almost feels like I have this very visceral connection, like almost like we're connected in this, I don't know, this mysterious way. And Mm -hmm. listening to Elise Regina, like there's something about the way that she sings where I'm like, wow, I feel so, I feel like I understand her very deeply. And so I listened to that, um, her version a lot. But the song is kind of strange. It's this, the lyrics are this abstract medley of objects, everything from loneliness to shards of glass. The first two lines are, Mm. epal e pedra, so it is wood, it is stone, and then it is the end of the road. It's a little bit of loneliness. And all of these things are being washed up in the waters of March which is the end of summer in Brazil. Um, so mm-hmm. there's a one verse that is, you know, the waters of March, the end of the closing of summer and the promise of love in your heart. So I just, I really love this idea of these mm-hmm. kind of like, it's very nonlinear. It's like all of these things that create life sort of wash up together and collide, but that gives the opportunity for rebirth and the promise of love. And so that was sort of my guiding I guess, guiding ethos for the book. The Mm. the title came to me really early on. And, you know, there were times during the publishing process where they're like, do you want something a little more commercial or shorter? And I was like, no, this is literally the core of the book. Um, Yeah. It can't can't be anything else. So, um, you know, and then I had a lot of fun with introducing elements of stone and wood. And um, as a former student of literature, um, I am an English major. I love, I love books where I can identify 
themes that that you know a metaphor and create meaning from that. And so I really love the idea of certain readers being able to identify that and feel like it's this kind of a secret conversation between writer and reader. And so you know, for me, the stone and the wood is it, it, they symbolize the things about us that shape us as people. Mm. Some you know sometimes they're very difficult to then undo. It's really difficult to to carve into stone mm. um, wood. Wood is a little bit easier to shape. Yeah. Um, and to go from I'm, stone into liquid, like Linda says, you know, I found that so, yeah. I'm always like, but that's not possible. <laughs> but it is. Yes. Think deeper, Louise, like think deeper, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. Well, and then it, it's, you know, perhaps the relationship between Linda and Dennis in the beginning seems like an impossible thing to change, that they're never going to be able to, um, to overcome you know, the, the foundational problems in the relationship, but then they figure out how to turn stone into liquid. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I love that. And I love the, I know it's kind of um, coming up in a, in a later question, but I love that idea of exchange or that kind of reciprocal relationship between, you know, the, the author writing words that the reader can kind of pick up on or feel like really there's a, you know, there's a strong message, there's a strong link. Yeah, I, I really, really loved that. And thank you for pointing out the wood um, references because I hadn't picked up on them as much. I guess it's just like how my brain is wired. Um, so that's going to be something really lovely to kind of discover and look out yeah. for on like a future reread. So, you know, let's talk about Linda, who is your protagonist, who to put it quite simply, goes on quite a journey, you know, finds out a lot about herself from the time that she spends in Sao Paulo. So perhaps before we kind of talk about Linda, it could be useful to just maybe place where she is at the beginning of the novel. And and also I wanted to kind of highlight how this book is written in the second narrative. So, you know, the you that Linda is addressing in the book is Dennis. And I found that incredibly powerful because it really speaks to, I don't want to say how far she has come, but like how much more at ease she is in her skin. So I don't know if, I, I mean, I, I, I kind of made some notes as to kind of explain where Linda is at the beginning of the book, but you're the author, like, you know, Linda best. Do you want to maybe just kind of set that up before talking about, you know, Linda's relationships with women, her, her, her the journey that she goes on, whatever you want to talk about? Yeah, so um, I always like to describe this book as about a, a woman named Linda who's trying to figure out what it is that she desires from life. At the beginning of the novel, her father has just died and she um, has spent the last year caring for him. She doesn't have a job anymore. Um, all of the money that she has is actually uh, money that her husband, Dennis, has earned uh, working as a professor at a university. And so in the beginning of the book, she's grappling with the fact that she thinks that the solution to this would actually be to ask for a separation um, and she's having fantasies about what water would taste like in Italy and what it would be like mm -hmm. to stand on the top of a mountain. And she's having fantasies about leaving. But then Dennis comes home and says, I have this great opportunity. Um, I've been offered a teaching position at the University of Sao Paulo for a year. 
And so instead of telling Linda, or sorry, instead of Linda telling Dennis how she's feeling, she thinks maybe this will be an opportunity for me mm. to um, to make the transformation that I need to make. But once she arrives in Brazil, not only has she still brought all of these feelings <laughs> with her, but she's now having to come to terms with the fact that she's a white American who's living in a fancy neighborhood. Her husband is a lauded professor and she's the professor's wife and mm. she has a maid now, mm. um, which she doesn't really know how to make sense of this. So her own personal trauma is coming up against the fact that in, she's privileged in many ways now that she's in mm. Brazil. Okay, great. And I, I, I thank you for, for that kind of intro to where Linda is. I, I think, uh, yes, Linda and, and Dennis, uh, Dennis's relationship is, is important. Um, and I kind of don't want to like sideline or completely neglect that. However, sorry, no offense, Dennis. Um, <laughs> that is the theme, one of the themes of the book. No offense, Dennis. <laughs> but we can obviously talk about Dennis too. Um, I think, you know, Linda figuring out how to let desire into her life, kind of how she gets there or who helps her there in very different ways are... Celia, who is a, a a chance meeting, and then definitely Marta, so the maid of Linda and Dennis. Um, Marta is another huge kind of guide or learning curve for, for Linda. And to a lesser extent, but still, I found that Melinda, so the an old an older woman who is also privileged and is the wife of Dennis's kind of professor boss. It's a very different. All three are kind of subtly different relationships, but all of these women play into Linda figuring how she, out who she is and yeah learning how to to bring desire in, into her life and um, I wonder if you wanted to speak a little bit um you know about some of those kind of characters or about some of those dynamics um that you know you particularly loved writing or that you've kind of heard or you've had kind of feedback from reviews or readers you know um yeah yeah so um I think that that's spot on that, that uh, they're uh, by meeting these different women and different types of women, yeah. um, Linda begins to learn more about herself. And there's a, a line that I think became another kind of guiding principle is this idea that um, she goes through an emotional apprenticeship. And that's true with her relationship with Celia. Celia is Brazilian. She's from Sao Paulo. She is an artist. She is very carefree seeming, though not everything mm -hmm. is as it seems with Celia. But yeah. she becomes very seduced by her and they have a, a romantic relationship and a friendship. Melinda uh, is um, <laughs> in some ways uh, was one of my favorite characters to write. And I have a couple friends who I think that they were trolling me, but they said that Melinda was one of their favorite characters. But of all the characters, she's the least self-conscious. 
she says whatever comes to mind and she really frankly doesn't care about how it comes across which is the idea of like that is a nightmare to Linda because she's so self-conscious and she's so worried about how she's coming across but Linda and Melinda Linda and Melinda they're yeah, both I noticed the, that as well I was like oh Linda's name is in Melinda <laughs> yeah and she's also a professor's wife and yeah. Melinda almost becomes this this uh, alternative path that yeah. Linda's life could take. Like she sees that three, she's three choices away or one choice away from becoming Melinda. And so she really cannot stand being around Melinda because I think she sees how she could be perceived as a Melinda to certain people or to herself. So, and then when her husband is consistently asking her to socialize with Melinda because it would be beneficial to him for his job, it's, it's, you know, she, she just can't stand it and she wants to retreat further away. And then Marta, I mean, Marta is, uh, definitely my favorite character for a lot of different reasons. She was the hardest character for me to write. I feel she's most personal to me. Mm. But, you know, in contrast to Linda, I think Marta is someone who is very embodied, even though she's a maid and she has not had a lot of choices in terms of um, social mobility. She is very embodied in her um, in herself, her personality, what she wants, what she desires. Um, mm. In some ways, she's completely in control of her labor because she's been in that apartment much longer than Dennis and Linda have. Um, mm. And so that freaks Linda out because I think she sees what's lacking in herself um, when she witnesses Marta moving through her space. Yeah, there is, like, the way I kind of described Marta and and Linda's particular relationship was, like, power struggle. There is, you know, for most of the novel, I I think that Marta knows where she stands and knows where to assert her power. I just loved how all of the kind of women, not in a, like, oh, they served Linda, you know, like they had a purpose to help Linda, the white American yeah. woman. It was right. it was just really beautiful because they all kind of found their place, perhaps with the exception of Celia, who just runs off on another adventure. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and is like, oh, who's the Linda now? So, right. <laughs> yeah, you know, that kind of evolution. It was also an absolute delight to come across a Sylvia Plath poem. Because we actually on Sunday had a book club discussion and uh, we spoke about the bell jar. So to see Lady Lazarus pop up was just a nice kind of full circle moment almost. Um, So I I wonder if you could maybe explain for the listeners uh, why this reference, how it relates to Linda. Yeah, well, I think I'm drawn to writers and characters, particularly women writers and characters, um, that sort of write to the bounds of themselves, um, that are just frightening with how um, much they're willing to tear apart, you know, mm-hmm. in their lives or around them. That's, that's, I just love, I find that juicy and just 
delicious to read. And I think Lady Lazarus is one of those poems where when I first read it, um, I was like, holy shit, <laughs> you know, it's crazy. Terrifying. It's, it's, it's terrifying. Crazy. Terrifying. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. It's, uh, I liked the idea of Linda when, when this poem comes up, she's in a sort of hallucinatory state. Um, early on, she begins to injure herself in her sleep. Uh, and she doesn't know how to stop it. And so sleep in some ways becomes a terrifying thing because she knows that when she goes to sleep, she's going to start cutting her own palms. Yeah. And they do all these things to try to prevent her from doing it. Like, but they start bandaging her. And the poem comes up when she starts, she's removing the bandages and looking at her wounds. And she starts understanding the pain and healing by looking at these puckering wounds on her palms that she's doing to herself. So there's sort of, there's a mirroring of what's mm. happening with Linda with this image from Lady Lazarus in the, um, in the Plath poem of removing the bandages, but also in removing the bandages and saying, look at me, look at my teeth, look at my wounds. Um, it becomes this empowering thing. Yes, I've died a million times, but I will be reborn. Yeah, and I thought it was, I mean, you know, Linda is kind of this almost self-harm while she sleeps is, um, you know, seems to be a manifestation of, of the grief that she's perhaps not processed and um, having fairly recently lost her father to Alzheimer's. But it, it's in this moment, um, this moment of perhaps vulnerability is how it seems to feel for Linda with the, the bandages and the hands and, 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 and kind of unwrapping and, and taking a long, hard look. But I, I remember kind of making a note of like, this This is kind of the first time that Linda lets, like truly lets Marta in and lets Marta mm. take care of her. So I loved how that kind of, it, it just made it even more powerful that there was, at first there was like the Sylvia Plath reference. I think to go back to Celia, just a, a little bit more, I think she kind of gives Linda a bit of an education, especially in regards to Brazil, uh, its historical violence, the scars that that has left that, you know, is potentially still maybe not visible, but they're still there very close to the surface. You know, Celia is, 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 is kind of an activist. She, she works in theatre and she, she says, you know, that's what I want to do with my theatre. I want to lift the mask and show that Brazil still has a lot of healing to do. And I was reading another interview that you did and, and, and I had no about, idea about this. I'm ashamed to say, but Brazil was the last country in the West to abolish enslaved people. And so Celia explains that a lot of the kind of what we consider quintessential Brazilian things, such as Carnaval, Capoeira, like the musical influences, all kind of stems, you know, from African culture. I just wondered kind of how much did, did you know about that? How much is, you know, even from intergenerational conversations with the, your mother's side of the family, which, you know, still lives in Brazil, and, and also the, the, the time that we are living in, the, the particular reckoning that COVID has forced to the surface. I mean, in any, every kind of injustice, 
How is that? Are people talking about that in Brazil? Yeah, well, I'll just say there's a lot there. And I'm certainly not an expert in um, right. Brazilian history or in, you know, in race relations. But I will say that, well, I guess two things, just to start with my family's relationship to how race works in Brazil. I think that this is very common, but especially because my mother is a, um, an immigrant in the United States, you know, race ideology is so specific to place. Um, and the way that race works in the United States is di very different in some ways to the way it works in Brazil. And so mm -hmm. my mother's kind of rudimentary understanding was that the United States is a racist place because she has experienced racism here, but in Brazil, she didn't. So Brazil isn't a racist place. Mm. And so growing up, that's kind of, that was my understanding, like that the United States is the country with the race problem and Brazil has somehow um, transcended race. And so, you know, that was kind of where I started. But then as I did more research and started to understand the history better, um, I began to sort out kind of the, the decision, historical decisions that were made that makes the United States very particular in the way that race is segregated between mm. um, white and black people, you know, these kind of stark races. After mm. the abolition of slavery here, we segregated black and white people and, and that continued. But in the United, or sorry, in Brazil, they instituted assimilation so that they tried to whiten the population as, um, you know, they basically they encouraged immigration from white um, countries in Europe mm -hmm. and allowed um, interracial marriage, but for the purpose of, of whitening the population. Yeah. Um, so because of that, you know, in the United States, they, they banned uh, black music, um, they banned a lot of cultural signifiers that came from Africa, but they didn't in Brazil. And so those things were mm -hmm. um, able to, to stay, I guess. Um, they continued um, and they're very part of the culture now. So, you know, I was, I didn't write a lot about this in the novel, but mm. um, it was important to kind of have that history, I think, as a uh, context for the novel and especially with a character like Marta who is black and indigenous yeah. um, bringing up the fact that this history exists in Brazil I think was important to better understand her character and understand Linda's context of being mm -hmm. in Brazil and so yeah so that's kind of where I was coming from with that and I think it was just important for me to um, to better understand the country where I come from you know, I, I just, I think, especially when you're writing about a place where, you know, I didn't grow up in Brazil. And so I think mm. I had some insecurity that I wasn't going to get it right. And so mm. I really compensated by doing as much research as I could to understand um, mm. the social fabric and the history of racism and slavery in Brazil is a big part of the country today. And I think, you know, um, as you say, it, it provided, oh, it kind of, yeah, it provided a context. And I think it's, it, it, you know, it felt important. And I would say it felt natural the way that you included this detail. And I think, if anything, it just, like someone like me, for example, oh, don't know, so I'm going to go and seek out more literature or go and read up about this or watch a documentary. You know, it's kind of like an entryway into educating oneself how was the experience of, of you bringing it is wood it is stone to life and not just in the writing but also like 
the pitching, the agent, the drafts, the editing, the publication, the release, like from A mm-hmm. to Z, because it yeah. was kind of a debut novel as well. Like, how how was that? Oh, yeah. Uh, well, first of all, it's such a long process. Mm-hmm. Um, and especially for a debut, you know, I wrote this book and the majority of the time spent on this book, I had no idea I was going to publish it. I was writing um, what I wanted to write and what I thought was interesting. And it wasn't until very late in, like, you know, really until I had a book that was finished and I actually really liked it that I was like, maybe I should try to publish this. Like I said, I had a very full-time job. I wrote um, while writing, I mean, uh, working full time. At one point, I was writing and teaching and working full time, and I mean, it was crazy. Um, a lot. Yeah, I think I'm still recovering, like just my sleep from that period of time because I was just not sleeping a lot. But yeah, so I wrote the majority of this. Uh, I think that I started writing it when I was in an MFA program, which was like 2013, um, and I I took I didn't write intensely work on it that into, you know, that entire period I sold it in 2018. Yeah. So that's about five years, but, yeah. uh, but I wasn't, I took, you know, years off where I wasn't mm-hmm. writing it at all. And then really, I think it was like 2016 where I, um, I had, I actually had dinner with a mentor of mine, Flaminio Campo, who's a great short story writer. And, I, she was like, how's the novel going? And I was like, well, I haven't really worked on it for a year, but I've been working on some other stuff. And she was like, well, maybe you're just not meant to write this novel. And I was horrified and so pissed. And I, yeah. went, I can't believe she said that to me. And I'm not kidding. I think I wrote every day after that dinner. <laughs> yeah, it served um, as, as incentive. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then, you know, the publishing process is wacky. It's difficult. It's a hyper competitive space and I am not a competitive person. um, And that can be difficult. You know, it's kind of the most incredible thing that can happen because it's like winning the lottery and it is such an incredible experience having people read your writing I mean wow like you know my book is out there and people I don't even know are buying it and reading it and um you know having their own experience with it which there's nothing else a writer can ask for in some ways but you know this was a deeply personal book for me I, I said before that it was my chance to reconnect with Brazil and especially in writing Marta's character you know I wrote some things um particularly there's a there's a part of Marta's story that has to do with her sister being molested when she was younger, which is very, you know, really intense subject to write about. Yeah. But then I, I wrote it and after writing it and talking to my mom, discovered that I was actually writing things that had actually happened in our family without even, I, there's no way I would have known that. I mean, one thing is that my mother didn't really talk about Brazil a lot growing up and her own personal experiences. And I'm not, and it didn't happen to her. I'm not revealing anything for her, but, mm-hmm. but I was in so much physical pain writing the story. I mean, really, I was going to acupuncture once a week. I was, I mean, there were times where I would have to lie down on the floor and my body was spasming and I couldn't get up like really intense physical pain. And I know it was connected to the fact that I was, really unearthing something in me Mm. so you know it's a it's it can be a really intense thing to write 
Um, and then publishing is a very business oriented process. It's really about like sales and marketing and stuff that yeah. I don't know about, know much about, don't really care <laughs> right. so much about. <laughs> so it can so. be, it can be a really strange thing to shift between these things of having this really deeply personal experience writing and then um, to shift back into business mode. Um, and and focused on profitability and capitalist yeah. interests and all that, but God, so much happier doing this than working at a law firm. So, <laughs> so I'm really at the end of the day really grateful that I get to do this. Great to have some insight there as to how it is because I do do feel it is something that um, interests me because I, I do think sometimes maybe not sometimes, maybe a lot of the time, you know, um, the writing process can be romanticised. Um, it sometimes feels like uh, book deals fall into people's laps when actually behind the scenes, it's just so much kind of, as you said, like it's a drawn out process. Mm. There are many elements to it. And it's not just, you know, thinking about the words and the plot and the characters. It's it's, yeah. it, it goes way beyond that. You know, there is this narrative around writing that it is a, a, a leisurely occupation or it's not an occupation that, um, you know, mm. writing is is something that the leisure class does or something. I think in some ways it's true because it's so difficult to make a living from writing these days. I mean, it's nearly right. impossible. I'm only to do, able to do it right now because I worked I mean, I was working 50, 60 hour work weeks while writing and then I got a book deal and was able to scrape together money, um, you know, but I don't know what next yeah. year is going to look like. It's it's mm -hmm. difficult. And so often people who turn out to be writers are those who have money already. But it's, you know, it's a difficult uh, it's difficult because it's not financially stable. And then also writing is a really exhausting thing. It's not like clocking into a job and you can mm -hmm. kind of do mindless work for a few hours and then you can't you know, half-ass it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's, um, yeah. Yeah. So kind of briefly mentioned earlier on this kind of, I think it was in a lit hub, um, kind of into question and answer kind of quick fire thing that I, I saw you kind of, you know, just describe that for you, any kind of art, you know, it, it is reciprocal. It's, you know, what have been some of your highlights of that reciprocal relationship with some of your readers during a very, as we've said, particular year, crazy year, a hard year with, you know, a kind of launch tour having to be virtual or maybe having to be cancelled or pushed back at a time when you know anything we can hold on to or celebrate um feels good how how has that been for you upon the release of it is wood it is stone yeah well I think because this is a debut I don't know any other way it's going to be fascinating to release my next book and like see people <laughs> while it's happening I can't wait <laughs> <laughs> You know, I think the benefits of doing virtual things is that I, you know, people, friends I have all over the world and country, um, you know, are able to join some of these events, which has been mm. really special. Um, so that's been lovely. And then also, you know, being able to do things at home means I shut the computer and go directly to my couch and have a martini. And that's lovely, too. <laughs> Excellent. But, you know, being able to, I think what we miss is 
sometimes it's not the event, it's not the reading, but then once the reading is over and audience members are able to walk up to the podium and chat and really ask their questions. And, um, you know, it's about going out with the authors after the event and having dinner. That's the kind of stuff that we don't get to do, which, uh, which when I think about it too much is depressing, but I'm just so happy that my book is able to go out and run around in this world because books can't catch COVID. And so, um, (laughs) you know, in a way that <laughs> it's, it is what it is. Stone is doing the socializing for me, which is really nice to think about too. Maybe when this is over, I'll be able to have a reboot and, um, you know, talk to people who spent time with my book in quarantine and um, appreciated the company. For sure. Yes. I'm sure there are many who feel like that to reading your book. So before kind of we, we hit record, we were talking about, you know, the, the current atmosphere in the US. Um, the election is, is coming up uh, next Tuesday. There are record numbers in terms of early voters. It's obviously, you know, a particularly challenging time. Have you, are you one of those people who have been able to, to, to read during lockdown? And if so, you know, have you been rereading any kind of comforting favorites, which, which authors have, have maybe provided some relief from a difficult year? Um, you know, I just recently started getting focused with reading again. I, all year, I started and, and abandoned probably like 10 books, I want to say. They're all in my nightstand. Um, I was really distracted reading. Um, and you know who brought me out of it was Elena Ferrante, as she always does. Um, and I just, I read The Lying Life of Adults and... Wow, like, is it cliche to say that you love Lana Ferrante? Because I really don't care. Love her. Like, she just is so, I mean, she's so good. And this book, have you read it yet? I, okay, so I was just going to say, first of all, who cares if it's cliche or not? You can say you love Elena Ferrante. And I yeah. love how much you are expressing that you love her. Yeah, we Moment don't talk about truth. it enough, I think. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Moment <laughs> of truth. I have not read any Elena Ferrante. Please do not judge me. Oh, this awaits me. This pleasure now awaits me. Okay. So, so the title you just referenced is is her late is is it her latest title? It's new, isn't it? Okay. Um. Mm-hmm. So you love Elena Ferrante. What was it about? What is it about her? Okay. You know go, what go. I'm realizing. I think that we're in this particular moment, this like transition where writers are starting to understand the duty we have in shaping narrative, like global narratives, um, national Mm -hmm. narratives, narratives about class, race, gender. I mean, writers really have an obligation, I think, to consider these things when they write. Whether you write beach reads or, or whatever, you know, mystery novels, whatever, if you're writing about human beings, you have to think about these things and the implications your books have. But I think that sometimes that obligation comes at the expense of just like the juiciness and the like, just rapture. Um, the dirtiness of books Mm -hmm. and you know morality can sometimes be at odds with 
you know, just, just that juiciness. And that, that's yeah, what I yeah. love in books. Like I love like a story where I'm just like, <gasps> you know, it's just like your breath is taken away. Um, and I think Elena Ferrante does that. Elena Ferrante's book, um, uh, the days of abandonment was a, uh, book that really kind of influenced my writing of it is what it is stone I mean I could go on and on it's just the (laughs) writing is great the characters are so specific and and just yeah they're so fully formed and then the story itself like the stories she chooses um are not only interesting but she does grapple with a lot of especially class dynamics in Naples Mm -hmm. Um, she's kind of like nailed that and just knows how to introduce um education disparities and um what what wealth does to communities um she just it's just part of the narrative it's so good so yeah the lying life of adults got me through um i also read vesper flights did you read helen mcdonald no this is a new this has not popped on my radar tell me more Oh, it's um, an essay collection. Um, she's a naturalist writer, so it's nonfiction. Ooh. And um, she's English, I believe. And she writes, I mean, there's so many different essays about climate and nature, but then she also kind of ties it into like the human condition and the way humans are. It's really, I mean, excellent writing. And I'm kind of, what I'm working on now has an element of thinking about um, nature and climate. And so reading her kind of, it sort of inspired me in different ways. So those two, and then also Parakeet by Helene Bertino. Um, Ah, this I have heard of, yes. Mm. but I haven't yeah. read it I would say read that it's okay. you know while I was reading it I was like this is a really interesting book and and I didn't know how to kind of sit with it and then mm. I find myself thinking about parts of that book like months after I've read it um Ooh. it's so she is a master at sentences like she just will flip compl- start a sentence and you're completely turned inside out by the end of the sentence um, and it's a very bizarre story about a bride who's nameless. And in like a week before her wedding day, she's trying on her wedding dress and a parakeet appears and it's her grandmother um, like reincarnated. And she tells her that she needs to go find her brother and then shits on the wedding dress. <laughs> cool. Yeah. And I will tell you this, you know, because the parakeet appears and I'm like, what? The parakeet's her grandmother. And when the parakeet leaves, I teared up because it reminded me of my grandmother and like this experience of your grandmother leaving and how sad that is. I was, yeah, it's a, it was wow. a fantastic novel. Okay. going to put that in the newsletter for the FBC and going to call Shakespeare and Company or see if it's available on the website. Sounds yeah. phenomenal. Thank you for sharing those um, reading recommendations with us. I guess I better get on my, uh, Ile- correct my Elena Ferrante. Uh, I think, you know, I, I mean, I don't know a lot about your taste in literature, but <laughs> if you enjoyed The Margot Affair, um, yeah. I think that you're going to love like love, 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 love Elena Ferrante. And then I actually, when I meet people who have never read Elena Ferrante, I am jealous because you have so much ahead of you. 
there's so much yeah, to read. That's it. I, like at least I've yeah. like got something to look forward to, you know? Well, just before I leave you in peace, you, you said that, you know, this year you decided to become a, a, a full-time writer. Mm-hmm. Now it is worded as stone is out in the world, but do, do you know what comes next? Like, are you working your way through that? Could you give us a kind of teaser as to, to what we could maybe expect? Yeah, I'm working on a second novel. It is, it is set on an island. Um, I grew up on an island called Nantucket, which is a um, very kind of famous destination um, for mm-hmm. the rich and wealthy. And um, it's off the coast of Cape Cod. And so this nameless island is very closely based off that, but um, about two sisters who grew up there and sort of their, their fight to keep their family together. <gasps> oh more stories about women oh yeah family oh my gosh yeah I think I only have one male character in this book <laughs> it's all women I'm very interested in relationships between women so it's a continuation of that well listen Gabby thank you so much for your time um it's been wonderful to chat about uh, it is wood it is stone yeah just you know take care in these tense weird slightly scary times and uh really looking forward to getting our hands on your next novel whenever that comes out thank you so much this was a treat bye bye thank you for listening we hope you enjoyed the conversation with gabby All useful links can be found in the show notes, so where to get your hands on a copy of It Is Wood, It Is Stone, where to follow Gabby on social media, give us a like, leave a comment, tell us what you thought about the podcast, we love hearing your feedback, and take care, we'll be back soon with another fantastic guest. Bye!